Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been over 300 of them recorded now, and if you go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, you can see them categorized in various ways. As they say on public television in, in the United States, this program is made possible by the support of generous and appreciative listeners and viewers. So I want to express appreciation for those who have supported it, and if you feel inclined to do so, there's a donate button on batgap.com. My guest today is Steve Ford. Steve lives in the UK. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Rick. London? Or no, someplace called Slough or something like that. Where is it? Slough, yes. yes. Slough. I, I, but at the moment, I'm living in a place called Egham in Surrey. Ah, they have cool yeah. names for things over in England. It's not far outside London on okay. the Thames. Great. Yeah. Oh, you're living on a boat, somebody said. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Huh. On the Thames? On the Thames, yeah. Great. I didn't know people did that. I know that in Holland people live on boats, but I didn't know that that happened until recently Dan O'Keefe told me that you were living on a boat. I was, I was in the Holland, uh, Amsterdam not long ago, and, and I saw some great boats over there. Yeah. Fantastic. So, as people know who watch the show, I've done over 300 interviews, and um, I think that your particular awakening story is one of the most interesting ones I've ever heard. Quite unusual and we're going to hear about it in a minute. Um, in fact, we'll start about it just about right now. Um, you, firstly, there's one thing you mentioned which I find comes up quite a bit in people who have, especially people who have spontaneous awakenings or unsought awakenings, is that they had stuff going on when they were little kids, um, you know, that are a little bit out of the ordinary. So um, maybe we should start there. Mm, what a place to start. <laughs> I think, didn't you, wasn't it you who said that you had some kind of profound experiences looking at the stars or something? No, I did, yeah. I've got an, an amazing memory, very visual, and I can remember things going as far back as to when I was in the cot, you know. In the what? Blank, in oh. the cot. Oh, you in mean like a, a crib, you mean? Yeah, in a crib, yeah. a chewing blanket. And, and as I got older, I remember, I remember my early, early reflections, contemplating as a child. I, I remember contemplating on existence. Hmm. Because uh, it fascinated me uh, what this was all about, you know, what, what, what appearance was, what the world was. Why were there people? Why was there existence? Why? why? And I remember thinking, what, what, what if this had never happened? Because it, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting thing. It's quite an interesting phenomena, uh, appearance and existence. Because um, that in itself is strange. You know, why is this here? And I try to imagine what it would be like if there was no appearance, if there was no world, what would it be like? And I remember that there was a, a real sense of just the mind falling away and there being just absolutely nothing, uh, emptiness. And, and it was really uh, strange, very odd, odd feeling of, of coming away from, uh, yeah, yeah, just imagining that was, was quite a funny thing. I don't know if this is true or not, but I trying to rationalize or understand why people have profound experiences and then eventually have profound awakenings without having done any spiritual practice, so to speak of. Yeah. I kind of, you know, rationalize that as they must have done some work in past lives or something. You know, they must have been, and, and sometimes people do remember that. They, they remember, oh, yeah, I was, work, you know, sitting on my butt in a monastery for five lifetimes or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have you ever had any recollections like that? No, I've, I've no recollection of a, of a past life. Um, I've kind of had some strange memories that I can't account for, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of... That didn't seem to be from this life? 
Yeah, no, it doesn't seem to be from this life, but it, yeah. it could be from a collective consciousness. It could be, you know, consciousness is a very mysterious thing anyway. I mean, like yeah. you said, you know, it's hard to rationalize. But as a child, I had a very free mind anyway. It was never fixed in any one way. I was kind of just moving all over the place, just just um, daydreaming, really. I was hmm. one big daydreamer. Were you a halfway decent student? No, not really. No, I, 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 I'm dyslexic. So, hmm. uh, and it wasn't picked up at school. So the only thing I was good at was art. So my attention went more into that, and, and I ended up uh, in, in leaving. Well, uh, there was part of my life going to college and studying art. But uh, academically speaking, I, I never really uh, ventured into that uh, much. Not, not growing up anyway. Later on, I did. You know? Yeah. And um, as I recall hearing your story, um, you rather um, emulated or, or admired your father and then he turned out not to actually be your father, and that, that was a big shock for you. It was a shock, yes. Um, I, I, did try, I, I did want to emulate my father. He was a very important role model in my life. And uh, at the age of 18, it was very much, um, well, there's the standard of man. And, 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 and I kind of had a lot of, uh, I don't know if, a lot, if it's for a lot of people, but I invested a lot of my masculinity in who I thought I was. Mm. In, in my father. So um, when I found out he wasn't my real father, it, it, it was a huge shock. Incredible. I mean, just being told when you're 18, it was a shock. And, and that really was the end of my life up until then. That, that's when my life came to a point and, and, and everything changed rather suddenly at quite a young age, you know, and it, it, it answered a lot of questions. Obviously, when you're told something like that, the first thing you do is you look back over your life and think, ah, oh, of course, that's why. Mm. That's why so-and-so treated me like that. Not badly, but kind of uh, my relations with certain people in the family weren't as close as, say, my brothers and sisters who were the legitimate children. Hmm. Me, being the legitimate child, <laughs> kind of pushed out a bit. And it, it answered a lot. And also, obviously, it made me realise why I was so different, you know, because genetically, when you're different genetically, sometimes you still follow a genetic code, even if you've never met the real parents or, or whatever. There's a, there's a code within you. you sure. Know, my code, I've always been very uh, philosophical, I've always been artistic, I've always drawn and stuff like that. That, that seems to be the way I was. Yet I existed within a family that bore none of that. So although I, I really uh, loved my father and wanted to emulate him, um, it was quite frustrating because I couldn't be like him anyway. So when I was told he wasn't my father, there was a certain relief. I thought, <laughs> oh, okay, I don't have to pretend anymore. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, Speaking so. of the genetics, I've heard cool stories about like, twins who were separated and didn't know of each other's existence, and they went through all these remarkable things synchronistically. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I did twin studies when I studied psychology as well, mm. when I went to college uh, in later years. Yeah. So didn't you say in one of your interviews that your father was a bit of a drinker, that he had a drinking problem? I don't think he had a drinking problem. He just liked drinking. No. Oh, okay. Um, no, he was not a, an alcoholic or anything. He just like drinking. And and um, and growing up, um, you know, it's awful, isn't it? I'm talking about my family here, but uh, but it just in a general sense, my father's great. But but years ago, when he was very young, uh, he just liked going out drinking. He'd come home sometimes, and it was a typical case of where have you been? The wife saying where have you been? And right. sometimes there'd be an argument. And I was just very sensitive, and I'd be upstairs in bed, and I just remembered. Uh, sometimes I did remember the fights or, or the arguments that kind of did occur. Yeah, you know, it, it didn't happen all the time, but when it did happen, I I do remember it, and and I remember my reaction to that. My reaction to that uh, well, was what was fear. 
and it kind of I just isolated more really I, I kind of went into my own world of uh, exploration really I had a that kind of background but even much more so my father was an alcoholic and would come home drunk several nights a week and keep the whole family up you know till three four in the morning yelling at my mother and so I, that's why I kind of tuned into that point when you mentioned it and it's really baffling because I, I, I did end up you know becoming an alcoholic right. in, in later years uh, and yet um, it baffled me that that my father wasn't because he drank much more than me <laughs> but he you know there's a difference between a heavy drinker and a and an alcoholic, he he could get up and work the next day, whereas when when it happened to me, I couldn't. I, well, back to genetics. I mean, some people just have a proclivity toward that that disease, you know, and if yeah. they can't handle alcohol in the same way, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, definitely. And I would have become one myself or a drug addict, but I fortunately learned to meditate when I was eighteen and kind of Aye. got on a better track. You got addicted to meditation. That's you? right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> more wholesome yeah. addiction. Oh, for sure. <laughs> okay, so then you've alluded to the fact that you became an alcoholic, and, and was, I guess this was somewhat in reaction to the revelation of your father not being your father, and it kind of threw you into a tailspin, and you started drinking. Yeah, that's right. As soon as I found that out uh, at the age of 18, I, I kind of, if I have to be really honest, I was more embarrassed than anything. I, I, I just found it shocking that... All these people bit, knew about it and you didn't. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That, it, it really boiled down to that. And I, and I thought, well, why, why didn't you tell me earlier? <laughs> you know, why didn't you just say to me when I was eight? I could have integrated it. Yeah. Uh, and yet and the so, whole family was black, right? And you never picked up on it. <laughs> yeah, they were black Hindus. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God, I'm so dumb. <laughs> Exactly right. So, uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah. No, and that's 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 so. So, what was the question? Where, where, where oh, um, that it sort of like threw you for uh, a tailspin yeah. when you discovered this, and then it kind of precipitated your your alcoholic phase. The biggest thing that it, it, it you know, there there is my reaction, but the, the biggest thing that it, it did was destroy my identity. You know, I, I then went through an identity crisis. That's really what happened. There was an identity crisis. Uh, I, I'd identified with my father so much. There was the ideal of uh, working towards being like my father, and suddenly that was gone. And, and, uh, and in the absence of that, in the absence of that, it left quite a void, quite quite a space where um, I, I could say, looking back, I just didn't know who I was in this space. You know, mm. there, there was uh, certainly um, just a sense of uh, absence, really, and and. And I remember thinking at that time, I, I really need to know who I am. I need to find out who I am. If 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 he's not my father, and I'm trying to be like this father, then, then who am I? Who 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 am I in that absence? Who am I, Steve? For because one of the things that really helped mess the identity up was um, not just being told that he wasn't my father, but also because uh, it came about by me asking for my birth certificate. Uh, I'd never seen my birth certificate before because it, it, when I got to AC, you know, it was the first time I was going to go abroad on my own. And um, so, of course, when I asked for the birth certificate, my mother said, oh, you know, don't you? And I said, no, 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 what? And she said, well, your father's not your father, you know. And, uh, and then she said, you need to know this because when I give you your birth certificate, it's actually got a different name on it. You know, you're not who you, you know. So uh, not only was he not my father, um, I was given a piece of paper with a different name on it, and his name was Steve Ford, well, Stephen Ford. And, uh -huh. and I thought my name was Stephen, I won't say the name, but, right. you know, S S Stephen, you know, 
whatever. Sort of plot. Yeah, exactly. It's a sort of plot, you know. And I thought, God, you know. So suddenly, not only is he not my father, but I'm not even this person. <laughs> I was just had a different name, and it's like I was given my true identity. I think, you know, and yeah. and, uh, and then suddenly I just thought, wow, this this is incredible. Uh, that that was just it. Really messed up the identity. Yeah. Quite yeah. A bit. Well, you know, on the point of, uh, of themes common to spiritual awakenings, it's, I also notice that very often um, some kind of shake-up like that precipitates, well, in your case, it was a decade later before you, you, the spiritual element came in, but, but it very often does precipitate in people some kind of either intense seeking or spiritual shift or something. They're, they're just kind of knocked out of their complacency by something, and, and, and a, then some kind of quest begins. Yeah, that's true. I mean, for me, I mean, I wouldn't say it's not spiritual. I mean, drinking was a great sadhana, you know. I, I, um, I wouldn't say it's a great sadhana, but the, the, I, I experimented very much with then who am I, you know, while, yeah. um, this, this weird world of, of, of drinking, you know. But uh, There's this thing goes around on the internet of yoga asanas and drunks form, assuming various poses, you know, as they kind of droop off park benches and all this kind of called alcoholic yoga or some such thing. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a, there's an art to drunkenness. I'm <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there was um, there, it did participate. I mean, uh, I, I don't think I would have been the seeker that I was if I'd not been told my father wasn't my father and then given a, a birth certificate with a different name. Yeah, I think I think uh, it broke me. It broke the identity. Yeah. You know, principally speaking, looking at the principle of the situation and, and what happened, uh, it broke the identity. It broke me. Uh, in terms of who I thought I was and who I could be as a person. That got smashed and uh, I was left on my own and, and, and left in a very abstract place as well, this absent hmm. place of him not your father. So it, this place was very abstract, you know, it, it wasn't, and nothing had landed in there, you know, I didn't know who I was, of course. And then with drinking, um, it, it, drinking became uh, a very distorted kind of reality in its sense. And, and it, trying to experiment with reality, trying to find out who I was. I tried to be mm. the artist, the poet, the whatever. I was quite pretentious, you know. How about drugs? I mean, that's a, a much better way of experimenting with who you are than drinking, in, in my opinion. <laughs> and it really opens up some weird places. That... No, it, it can do, but I, I didn't do drugs. I, mm. I, um, for me, drink was, uh, was really good for getting you out of it. I was one of those guys that just wanted to get out of it, mm. you know. I just liked... Um, when it comes to drug addiction, I've met people, the people that I equate to most with drug, drug addicts are like heroin addicts and, and yeah. uh, people are downers, take downers. Right. Uh, people that just want to get out of it, you know. I wasn't into stimulants or, um, what's the other one? The um, Psychedelics. Uh, or... Psychedelics. So right. I certainly wasn't into that. So, um, and I don't know why that was. I just, I was an absolute bog standard alcoholic. I just absolutely love drink you know hmm. interesting um yeah yeah i'm getting euphoric recall as we speak you know i'm joking <laughs> i'm not really but uh yeah it's funny you know i mean just uh, jumping ahead a little bit um i always have the attitude that someone who is really spiritually awakened to some profound degree wouldn't find drugs or alcohol appealing anymore because the state that those things produce in you is so far inferior to the state you're in all the time that there wouldn't be any enhancement. It would be like, oh, I don't like this. Get it away from me. I mean, could you say that now? Or is there something about your nature that would actually still find it appealing if you tried it? Oh, um, I think, I think, well, there's, there's two sides to it, really. Uh, it's a fantastic question. Really good question. 
I um, the the permanent state of of, of self realization or whatever you want to call it this this is is uh, is the most amazing thing. Of course, is 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 wonderful. Um, but you, you can lose that, you know, if you used to take drugs or drink. Sure. Uh, and I'm sure it, it would be fantastic to get absolutely drunk or get... But it, it, it's just the next day, it wouldn't feel good at all. And and, uh, and if you were to start doing that again, yeah. uh, it, it, it would uh, you'd lose a lot. And just know. to press the point, even if you did get drunk and you did, and it caused you to lose the state of self-realization or to muddy it up to a great degree, yeah, absolutely. I mean, how would that in any way be... Um, desirable or interesting I, I would think I would want to sober up as quickly as possible because I would feel so much less well or happy or clear than I'm accustomed to feeling all the time well that's the thing isn't it you would feel contaminated you wouldn't feel clear you'd lose the clarity yeah. uh, and, and you'd really feel it and and um, yeah you'd be you'd be experiencing uh, states of consciousness that are not uh, reflective of what's really real it, it become I, I'd imagine quite horrible really I've never really thought about it, to be honest. Uh, yeah. Well, it's an interesting point because there actually have been some spiritual teachers who do a fair amount of drinking and even drugs, and I, I always kind of wondered about the profundity or genuineness of their of their realization if if they're carrying on like that. And also, it brings in the point, and you, I know we'll talk about this, but you have been a professional drug and alcohol counselor. Uh, it kind of brings in the point that spiritual development or in whatever way it's approached might actually be a good part of your toolkit uh, uh, to help people get straight because it can show them a, a, a natural way of feeling high in a sense all the time you know without having oh, to re sure. resort to harmful things yeah yeah for sure all right so you went on you, as I recall you also uh, entered a kind of an artistic phase got into college started studying art and stuff uh, as part of this you know, sh shake up in your comfy notion of who you were. No, no, yeah, I, I did, did art. I've, I've, it's something that I've always um, escaped into since I was very young. And, th and then when I left school and everything, I, I went, got into work. I, I ended up being self-employed with a partner running a, an air freight company near Heathrow. And, and, hmm. and I, found it, I found it awful, you know, it was very boring. I wanted some kind of outlet, and, and so I went and studied art at art college at, at night school. And then, unfortunately, I, I lost my business due to drink. And then I tried to carry on with the art, but it was just a, a nightmare, you know. I, my life got very unmanageable, where I would turn up at classes a little bit drunk, and, and then after a while I wouldn't turn up because I'd be drinking, and then, then it just kind of went away. But, but yeah, yeah, it, it was just very unmanageable, you know. I, I tried to uh, get into the artistic, but I could never complete it. I couldn't complete the courses um, and all of that. It just got in the way, really. So what was the turning point for you? How did you finally snap out of all this? I snapped out at the age of 27. I thought, I don't want to join a 27 club. What's that? Oh, like Jimi Hendrix and yeah. James Joplin? Or... Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I, I, was, I was playing the game of... I was playing the game of uh, Oh, I'll say pretentious. I, I, I thought I was a pained poet, not understood by the world, and, and all of these things. And, and I think Jim uh, Morrison died at 27 too. Like, yeah, that's he did. Three yeah. of them I can think of. Yeah. Yeah, and I love Jim Morrison. He was a huge uh, influence. Uh, I, saw in my the, early I saw the Doors live actually back in the day. Really, that's yeah. great. That's a <laughs> lucky guy. And 
Yeah, the, the book, no, uh, no One Gets Out Alive. What a great book that is, um, if you ever get a chance to read that. Very funny. But no, no, uh, um, no what's that book? I didn't, I'm not aware of it. Oh, no, No One Gets Out Alive. It's just a book. It's a, a reporter who knew Jim Oh, Morris, I see. Okay. And he yeah. hang out with him. He, he wrote this book. It's a good book. Mm-hmm. So what happened at the age of 27, I, I, I found myself always drunk, just drunk all the time. And I had this epiphany one day. I wake up. As I was saying, I was trying to work out art college and all of these things. I, I even went to, I even studied photography, tried to become a photographer, but I kept selling all my equipment just to buy booze. And then I'm trying to buy it all back. I, I was filming bands and doing all sorts of stuff and getting drunk. And it was, it was just, it was just a nightmare really. And uh, I, I thought I was, I was off to become some amazing photographer or whatever arty person and everything. And, and, and then just one day, it all just diminished the equipment when life got very boxed in. I, I wasn't going out much. I was just drinking more. And then one day I woke up and I thought, oh, my God, I, I just like drinking. It was an epiphany. Mm. I just, I thought, this is it. I drink. I drink, therefore I am. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I absolutely thought, well, that's it. I'm a drunk. And uh, it was, I was very accepting of it. It's very, um, there, there was like a, a moment of clarity. I thought, well, that's it, I'm a drunk. You know, there was no more trying to do other things to try. I, I wasn't to doing ra- it. justify or, yeah. I was trying to improve my life. In, yeah. in fact, I was so boxed in, I thought, that's it, I'm a drunk. And, and that was it. And uh, there was a point where I ended up with nothing. And, and uh, I, asked, I asked my mother, I said, can I just come stay with you for a few weeks just to sort myself out? She said, yes. But when I got back there, I realized We've been backing with him. Mum's not a good idea, and and a friend of mine at the time, I, I he saw the the problem the problem I was going through, and he said, look, you know, I've got a place, you've got a room there, and if you if you if you come to stay there, you know, as long as you go to a twelve step fellowship and st- sort your problem out, you, you're more than welcome to stay, which is something I did. I went there. Then I found myself getting into recovery, getting into the twelve step program, you know, the twelve step fellowship. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, that was it. That was the turning point, really, you know. Yeah, I actually have a category on BatGap, uh, on, on our category index page for people, for 12-step as a spiritual kind of uh, practice. Yeah. Which it is. Uh, I mean, it has a very sp- spiritual um, origin to it, doesn't it? I think it does, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you trace it back. It, you can trace it back to the the co-founders one of them being bill wilson and uh, he he actually you know in his story in his life story whatever in in the book well i won't say but i mean i can't talk i can't speak for aa or 12 steps or anything really but um he talks you know it all came about from a, a spiritual awakening that he had mm-hmm. you know? and uh they devise a program that that um kind of educates you towards um you know letting go of everything so eventually you 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 come into a, a spiritually awakened way of life. Yeah. yeah. So, so did you pretty much sober up from the time you joined twelve, the twelve step? Not straight away. No, I was quite resistant. They call it in and out. Basically, I, I, I was in and out of recovery for about nine months, and then um, after nine months, I went back, having fallen off the wagon. I think, I think the problem was I was. I was young, I was 27. It's really hard to deal with that problem when you're 27 because uh, you're looking at the pack running out to the pubs and everything. Even though I was ended up drinking on my own, it doesn't take long for you to start feeling good and then get the old feelings back and thinking, well, 
it'd be nice to go and hang around, see the girls, hang around with the guys in the bars. And, and, and I always thought, you know, I could go into a bar and, and, and drink Coke or lemonade or whatever, soft drink. And, uh, but that was never the case. And then in the end, um, I, was, I was very lucky, a, a good friend of mine who, who was in AA, sorry, I keep mentioning AA, I, I shouldn't really be doing that. Why not? Well, it, it's anonymous, you know. Well, you, I mean, everybody knows about AA. You're not naming names or anything. It's like... Well, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. But the thing is, there's a fine line. I really don't want to speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. So this, this just ties into my timeline. That leads to uh, the explanation of, of awakening and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, no, that's understandable. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. I mean, when, pe when you say 12-step, most people assume AA. That's, of course, yeah. of course, yeah. Yeah. So um, a good friend of mine, I, I came in after about nine months, well, yeah, after nine months, I had my last drink and it really surprised me, in fact, the last time I had a drink, it was, I'd been sober six weeks and I thought I'd cracked it and, and I walked in and I was so embarrassed and ashamed of myself and I, I said to my friend, I said, uh, uh, yeah, I've had a drink, I, I, I drank last night and he looked at me and he said, yes, that's what we do <laughs> and that's it, I got it. That was when I got it. I got the, I'm powerless over alcoholism. Yeah. When he said that, um, I think before then I've been trying to get sober. I've been trying to do this. I've been trying to, you know, uh, control it. When in the end, I, I realised I, I was absolutely powerless. And mm. uh, when he said that, I've not had a drink since. That was over twenty years ago. Yeah. You know? So, uh, yeah, it was really good. Hey, you have to come over to the states. We'll go out and celebrate. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But then there was an interesting thing where you had stopped drinking. You were in some philosophy class or sociology class, and there was some yep. some tutor who kind of said something that just was a, oh. another wake up call for you. That sounds like the next important thing. Oh, she. Um, oh, she 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 said something amazing. Um, she totally changed my life. If it wasn't for this woman, I don't think I I would be here today, so to speak, in in the way that things have evolved, or maybe I don't know, but. I was studying at college, I was doing a few sort of A-levels um, to get me into university to study theology and philosophy because two years into recovery, my, my, I'd, really, I'd really gone into what the program was about. I, I was really studying the principles of recovery, applying them to my life and really um, trying to expand on, my, on the spiritual basis. And, uh, and after two years, I thought, you know, because I went to meetings pretty much every day for about two years. And then after that two years, I decided to go to college uh, full time. And I studied these sort of A-levels. And, and one of the things I was studying was, was sociology. And the wonderful tutor who taught us the sociology, she kind of got on with me. I, I really got on with her. I was always asking questions, you see, and I, and I was always interested in, in the study of society because it was very much... Uh, explained a lot about reality as well. There was so, you know, for instance, you know, looking at Marxism and, and uh, false class consciousness, I just found that incredibly fascinating. What do you mean by false class consciousness? Ooh, I want to know more about that, mm -hmm. you know, consciousness, you know, false ah. class consciousness. And, and uh, so I, I'd be asking questions and there'd, there'd be people in the, in the, in the room saying, oh man, just, just, just take notes, don't, don't keep asking questions, <laughs> pain in the arse. But I couldn't help it. I, there was a compulsion in me. There was like, a, even though, even though after two years of recovery, and, and it was, it happened actually, it happened in the second year of, of college. So I'd been sober like three, three and a half years or something. And, and I remember 
again being very intense but you know asking questions and, and the class ended and then all the all the, all the guys had gone and, and i was left standing there with with the tutor and the tutor and i were talking or i think i was talking really and i was just blah 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 blah, blah. and she um talking about something and she just looked at me and she held her hand up and she just said you're not your thoughts are your feelings mm. like this and i i remember looking and and uh being stunned i didn't even think i was stunned absolutely stunned what, what do you mean you're not your thoughts or your feelings now i the way i negotiate life the way i negotiate my recovery the way i negotiate who i is through my thoughts and, and how i feel my emotional paradigm of reality the, the mental paradigm or structure or whatever is how i negotiate and and um as far as i was concerned you know that that was a tool to discern reality and, and uh, she's saying you know your thoughts and feelings you know, you're not your thoughts, your feelings. So she, she kind of disarmed me of, of everything that I was trying to use to find reality. I wonder if she had had some kind of Buddhist or spiritual background or something, and she's speaking from that. You know, I don't know. I, I would love to uh, maybe meet up with her again and, and uh, ask her, because I've never seen her since that day, really. I kind of left college after that. And, um, yeah, you know, she, you know, I bet you she'd yeah. really appreciate that. I, I've had people whom I taught to meditate 20, 30, 40 years ago, get in touch with me and, and you know, it's so good to hear from them. And there's one fellow who will be listening to this who has become one of my best friends and we hadn't, you know, been in touch for 40 years. So I bet you she'd really appreciate hearing from you and hearing what an impact she had on her, on your life with that simple sentence. Yeah, it was a very simple sentence and it's the biggest impact because um, there, there was something in me that was very receptive to that. It was very receptive. So when I, I walked out the room, I actually walked out not even saying anything. I, I, and that's very rare I do that. <laughs> Usually I would say, oh, well, thank you or, or goodbye. Yeah. Anyway, seek her. And, and I actually just walked out the room and, and uh, it stayed with me. And, and it impacted me so much that uh, it totally, totally took away the, the whole basis of my rec recovery up until that point. Hmm. It became shaky after that. I thought, oh my, you know, she totally pulled the rug from under the basis of what I thought was recovery. Interesting. So did, did you feel like vulnerable again, like you might relapse uh, based on that? No, absolutely. No, no, it's a good question. Um, I did, yeah. I found myself suddenly not able to function as easily as I, as I, as I could up until that point. There, there was a real ease hmm. before. I'd, I'd learned the recovery, so there was a real uh, automatic, mechanical almost, meaning to my recovery that that kind of appeared very good you know my life seemed very manageable i seemed okay but as soon as she said that it went in it blew it and suddenly i was going to meetings you know any meetings they encourage you to talk and they call it sharing talking I, I i would share something and then suddenly i would stop halfway through what i was sharing and feel very self-obsessed very diseased and, and it, it felt like i was right back at stage one of my recovery and i felt so I just felt really dishonest. Is part of the reason for that that when you took yourself to be your thoughts and your feelings, when you took them seriously, there was a sense of control. Yeah, I'm thinking yeah. this, I'm feeling that, I, I'm kind of in charge here. Yeah. And when, when she shattered that, then all of a sudden you realize you weren't in control, which no. to my understanding is actually a key part of AA is that, you know, I am helpless, I am not in control. So in a way it got you kind of closer to the ideal of AA. Yes, it did. It brought me into my powerlessness. Yeah. It brought me into a place of powerlessness over my recovery because I was quite powerful in my recovery in the way that I'd analysed it, 
the way I, it embodied it, the way the way I'd structured it into in some mental and emotional way uh, of functioning. Uh, suddenly, that suddenly there there was a sense of um, dishonesty where I'd been quite willful. I'd done this myself, and then I really sensed that I didn't know who I was behind it. Taking away the thoughts and feelings, and that not being me left a, a massive gap of, of then I don't know who I am. <laughs> it's and, interesting. And it's, so there's like these, the first thing when you're 18, you didn't know who you were because yeah, yeah. you didn't, you know, your father was not who he thought you thought he was. And then now again, there's this another shift into once again, I don't know who I am. Uh, uh, it, there you go. I the mean, rug pulled I, out from under you twice. There's a parallel process going on. I thought, hang on, here we are. And, and it's always been about identity with me, you know, mm. uh, as you say, when I was 18. And then certainly when, uh, when I was, I think I was 31 then. I was mm. 31. Uh, and, 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 yeah, and, and I felt very vulnerable and, and I felt fearful. Um, and I felt uh, a self-obsession, like a very acute self-obsession, real... Uh, Dis, a real disease in me, real very diseased, hmm. you know, and, and it, it 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 frightened me, and and um, so after three and a half years, I, I found myself walking away from AA, walking away from the, this fellowship that had saved my life, hmm. that had, uh, and and it wasn't it wasn't that the fellowship itself had let me down, it's just that I knew what I'd done with it. I knew that there was something wrong in the way that I'd responded to the program or the way I'd. I'd, I'd um, managed it and uh, basically I, I got rumbled, I got tumbled, you know, and, and in that there was a uh, thing and, and then I became dysfunctional. Suddenly my life was very dysfunctional and uh, so I stopped going to uh, and I stopped going to um, college as well. I couldn't function there either. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting that such a simple comment could throw you for a loop to that extent, you know? I mean, it was mm. like a little Zen Cohen or something that just... Well, it's strange, isn't it? Because, like, I've just announced that, talking to you, you know, you're interviewing me and I'm saying this, and, and uh, will it have a profound effect on someone else? Maybe, maybe yeah. not. But for me, it was absolute timing. It was that yeah. crucial time where the pressure was so great, what I was looking for, and what I was seeking with was so great, and, and she just popped that balloon, you know, with the, with the finest pin. I think timing is a really important point because everybody reads all these spiritual books and hears all these spiritual talks and for the most part people get all kinds of inspiration and, and benefit and, and whatnot. but there's something about timing where a really radical shift, the person has to be ready for it and when they are then mm. the very same words which they might have heard a year ago have this potent impact which they didn't have before. That's, that's very true actually, you, you can uh, hear something I think you've heard it, and then a year later, you really then hear it. Then yeah. something changes. Something changes in the person. Just learning it in your mind doesn't always change you as a person, does it? It sometimes needs to drop and land in you. Yeah, it's really important. One one point I harp on a lot on this show is that there's you know a lot of people who read a lot of books and get familiar with all the terminology of this stuff, and yeah. they kind of jump to the conclusion that that's it. They they are living non-duality because they can you know, quote Ramana Maharshi or something, but if they could actually step into his shoes, so to speak, see the world through his eyes, they would probably discover that there's a huge radical difference between, you know, their intellectual understanding and the, his experience. That's very true. There's a saying, isn't it? You don't know what you don't know. You can think you know, 
you can think you know, but you really cannot, you know, you don't know. That's how it was with me. When there was self-realization, it was like no one could have shown me that. Absolutely no one. So you're kind of segueing us into the happy ending of this story, which is that you didn't just uh, remain dysfunctional and unable to go to school and, and all that stuff. There, there was a kind of a, a watershed moment for you, which I think we're just about getting to now. Yeah, yeah, we are. We're getting to the point now where, um, you see, the thing is, if, if, I, had, if, if, I, if I came from a, a school of philosophy that led to enlightenment or awakening, I could explain it, couldn't I? But no, you get my life, don't you? My miserable... Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, messed up, uh, unmanageable life, and I'm really sorry, but that, that that's how it was for me. You see, so when it when it got to that point of uh, walking away, which was quite scary for me, because up until that point, um, I I saw the fellowship as the savior, so to speak. It, it, it totally saved me, and it did. There's no doubt about that, you know. Um, uh, and, and and of course, walking away from college, and suddenly I, I felt so alone. So dysfunctional. I remember walking, walking around Windsor, just uh, really, really knowing that I, I need to know who I am. You know, I need to know what this is. It is the most crucial thing in the world, really. I was cornered. I felt I was in a corner. There was nothing I could do, really. And you weren't putting this in spiritual terms yet, were you? You didn't no, think, you didn't no. kind of recognize, oh, wow, this must be what all of Buddhism and Hinduism and all these spiritual traditions are all about, knowing who you are. You were just kind of doing no. it in your, in your own terms, trying to figure out what was going on. That's right. I've never heard of Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadatta or uh, Krishnamurti. You know, I've not heard of any of the, these people. So for me, what I was looking for was honesty because I felt so dishonest. Mm. I was looking for honesty. And believe it or not, honesty is, is authenticity. And authenticity is, is realization, really. Yeah. But it, it's just that I didn't know that. I didn't know what the missing link was. I had no idea what. But I just felt so dishonest. Yeah. With yourself primarily, not like you were running around lying to people, but you felt like you were just yeah, myself, disingenuous yeah. within, in and of yourself, right? Yeah, the way, the way I felt was um, I, I didn't know who I was. Even though I'd, I'd formulated this, this, this good recovery, I'd made this better Steve, there was no lights on, so to speak. There was no, I, I could not speak from a sense of authenticity. Right. I, la I lacked that. And so? So, what happened, what, that evening? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it all happened one evening. I had no idea what was going to happen. It just—it was quite spontaneous, really. I found myself in my apartment. I found myself not, not being able to deal with this anymore. I knew that if something didn't change, I was going to drink again, you see. That, that was that, and that was my fear. And that's, to, to me, that was terrifying. Sure. Absolutely terrifying. I thought, oh my God, I'm going to drink again if, if this doesn't fix itself, you know. And I, and I, I did a thing. I asked myself, what is, it, what is it I have not done? What is it I have not done? Because I've been very thorough with working the, the 12 steps. You know? And so my, my response was to go through the 12 steps. I thought, right, step one, step two, going through my mind, what, what are these things? And then when I got to step three, I then realized, I thought, of course, step three is we hand our will and our lives over to the care of a God, great in ourselves or whatever. Yeah. And I had the most profound realization that I hadn't done that. What I'd actually done is I dived into the 12 steps very keenly and, and I'd, I'd come to understand all the principles, I'd come to apply them, but I'd applied them from, uh, from a mental basis in relation to a prescribed program, you see. Yeah. Now, between these two places, there was no Steve, you see. Now, I can say this looking back, 
because I've had to reverse engineer all of this and, and to understand because because oh, the awakening changed everything completely. It, it um, once it once it happened, I thought, what, what just happened? Even though I'll get to that in a minute. But anyway, so so I I realised. I thought, oh right, I have not I've not handed over my 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 will, and of course. Uh, Sheila Jervis, the, the, the tutor, the wonderful uh, sociology teacher, came into my, my mind again and I thought, of course, I'm not my thoughts and my feelings and I've not handed over my will in my life. I've not let go of the perceptual field of reality. I'm still hanging on to it, managing it, trying to create a better perceptual field or whatever, and a better Steve. And I just absolutely realised in that moment that I've got to let go of it. I've got to let go of of this. It was the only thing left to do. I tried everything. Three and a half years I've been working this program, working the inside of it and the outside of it and applying it and, and, and understanding everything, you know, and, and um, suddenly I, I just found myself in the middle of the floor on my knees as if in front of God and I knew that I had to hand over the mind and my feelings and I had no idea what would happen, you see. I hadn't been doing meditations to uh, transcend the mind or to have the perfect uh, emotional insight to things or whatever, you know. I, I, I had no idea of, of how to transcend or anything or what would happen. I, I really had no idea. So I found myself just in the moment thinking, okay, because of the uh, fear of going to drink again or... Or, or what have you, it, it really was, okay, here I am. Um, I will just give all of this to you now, all of this to you now. So on my knees on the floor, I consented to let go of my thinking. Now, this is something you can't just go and do. This is something, again, to do with timing, to do with pressure, to do with, in that moment, what was going on inside of me, what was going on. I mean, I was falling apart. There, there was absolutely no sense of authenticity. Um, I knew that if something didn't was going to work, I, I was going to drink again. For me, I just thought, then, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let go of my thinking. And for some strange reason, it worked. I have no idea why it worked. I could tell you now, Rick, or tell someone else, go, go get on your knees now and, and hand over your thinking. It will just go away and, and you'll be fine. You know, it doesn't work that yeah. way, does it? Because then the ego comes and says, right, I'm going to get it now. Yeah. What direction were you facing? What had you had for breakfast? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's when I said in the beginning that I thought yours was one of the more remarkable awakening stories I'd heard. That's that's kind of what I was referring to, what I was referring to there is that, you know, there's this this perfect sort of confluence of everything you had been through and your sense of desperation at that point, the kind of realization that you had to surrender your volition to some greater power and it all, it all just came together and it actually happened you know yeah it did and and the and the bed of that happening was my utter powerlessness and helplessness from the age of 18 i realized that my life had been a lie in my endeavor to create a recovery that didn't deal with that lie you know i still remained dishonest not knowing who i was in terms of identity and now at the age of 31 all these years after being 18, it, it just just felt, oh, I, I, I cannot do this anymore. This is it. This yeah. is, I'm on my knees. I said, okay. So I put my hands, naturally came down. I don't know if that's an important detail. My hands came down. <laughs> I stood there with nothing. 
and uh, and I pray to God because I was a Christian. I mm -hmm. still, I, you know, I, I, I'm not Christian as in identity, but at that time, That's the understanding I had of spirituality came through Christianity. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I stood before God, which to me was never a guy with a grey beard or a you know, big stick on a cloud. God to me was always a, an omnipresent sort of uh, reality, uh, whatever. And uh, I, I that evening, I just, uh, with, with the true intention, uh, handed over my thinking, and there was a in 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 a in a prayer position, and there was uh, a point where, as I let go, there was a slight sense of sadness, a slight sense of uh, disappointment that I had with myself, having to give the Creator my thinking back because it felt like I'd done nothing with it. <laughs> I felt very sad. I felt I'm sorry, but take the thinking back because of me. I, I've not done much good with this, you know, and I felt I disappointed God. In fact, that was one of the big things in my drinking was I, I really disappointed God, you know. And, um, and so at that point, the mind began to open. Uh, it was at a point where uh, I'd let go of the tension, the tension of identification. Now, I didn't know this at the time, but what I did was I just totally did not identify anymore with the mind because I knew the mind was not real. Sheila Jervis had told me that, you see, and I totally believe that. It's as simple as that. And at that point of knowing it's not real, it was still the scariest thing to let go of, mm. right? So letting go of that, I felt where I disidentified with it, where I let go of the attachment to it as a, as, as a reality principle, it started just to open because the mind, when you attach to it, becomes contracted you know it's like a, an energy and a tight contraction and and of course where i was no longer attached to it just began to open up and as it opened up it went beyond the coordinate that i'd set on it you see which is the egoic mark isn't it the control you have on the mind is uh you know the contraction the, the idea you have and so as it went started to open it went beyond the the idea of who i thought i was in, in the mental construct and so, so it started to go beyond the mental construct of who i thought i was and there was a, a fear. There was a fear of, uh, you know, you know, oh, don't know what's going to happen here. But but I was so broken, so broken, absolutely broken that um, I just stayed with it. I just thought, okay, well, um, well, you know, ride this kind out. of let's just do it, you know. Yeah. And 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 it dissipated. And it was like uh, I I I describe it as birds uh, flying out of a tree, a mm. flock of birds, suddenly, push, you know, when you shoot a gun, you know, mm. and all the birds, choosh, comes and, and it's like, it felt like my thoughts just dissipated. All the thoughts in my mind just flew away like a flock of birds. Mm. And, and, and just at that point, there was uh, this, this opening, just this, the mind opened up, the thoughts went, and suddenly the mind just became this blank screen. And there was this perfect observation of blank screen. And I, and I remember for the first time in my life coming to know peace of mind. I'd never known peace of mind before. I'd heard people say it, and I may have even at times thought I'd felt it or, or sensed it, should I say, not felt it, sensed it. But there was peace of mind. And it was like, you know, when they say, uh, the mind is the sky and the thoughts are clouds. It really is. That's, that's exactly how it was. Suddenly, 
there was this infinite sky of mind which became, it's, it's like a projection screen, but what is observing that is this pure awareness, this pure consciousness, and, and at that point I realized, oh, I'm not mad, you know, I'm not dead, I've not disappeared, I am observing this, and I'm observing from this, I couldn't have said this at the time, but now, from this undifferentiated awareness and the mind there, and suddenly the mind became the perfect reflection of what was observing, which was nothing, emptiness. This happened. There was no thinking. So, at that point, I remember suddenly being pulled into a deeper idea, okay, a deeper idea, which was an emotional idea, you see, because uh, we have layers of uh, thought, you see. We have the thought that is very abstract, we have the thought that is emotional, and we have the thought that is very physical, the body, you see. Now, I didn't know this then, but this is, this is what happened. So, suddenly there was a pull, a pull to a deeper aspect of contraction within my body. You see, the mind opened up, suddenly there was nothing keeping me from entering into what I call the heart area, yeah? And then suddenly there, there was a, a pull, and, and I felt myself as formless consciousness coming down into this area, into my heart area. And as I was going down, I, I wasn't expecting that, but I just stayed with the formless consciousness. There was no, um, there, there was no egoic I anymore, no, no mental construct of doership anymore. So there was just a, like a, oh, I'm going into my heart, you know. And suddenly, as I'm going into the heart, the heart is now... Uh, where there's no contraction set on the heart, the ego setting the contraction, keeping it in its uh, emotionally contracted identity of Steve on an emotional level, suddenly that starts to imitate pure consciousness. And so suddenly the heart begins to open because I'm not doing anything with it. And as it begins to open, there's a very, sh there's a pain. There was a pain, but it was a clean pain. A pain where there was no suffering. It was the because suffering is in the is in the is in the mind. You see, it's it's the attach the mental attachment you have have with things. Suddenly, as the heart was opening, um, I felt this pain, and and as I felt this pain, it was like the pain of the world. I know I'm I'm, I'm putting it on a biblical scale now. It was the pain of the world, you know, and uh, yeah. <laughs> And, and there's this pain, and this, this, this kind of voice not, came from nowhere. It was like a voice from uh, within this just said, um, you've been running away from this all your life. And I understood then. I understood. Uh, I've been running away from, from my heart opening. You know, i I'd been remained in what I knew all my life, you see. Suddenly, I'm going beyond what I knew. You see, I've done that now mentally, but now with the mind, but now on this level, the emotional level, this was on a much deeper level. The attachment, the emotional attachment we have for things is much deeper and is much stronger, you see. And so as it began to open, he um, said, this is what you've been uh, running away from all your life. And then it opened up and all there was was a void. There, there was, uh, going beyond the emotional contraction of my identity, there was just this absolute void. It was absolutely black and I'm, you know, I, I don't want to appear too dramatic or I don't want to frighten anyone. But for me, I, I, I then was facing this very dark void and uh, this void was pulling me in. And as I was being pulled into this uh, vortex, this, this, this 
this void, uh, there was another voice came in. It said, uh, you'll either go mad or you'll die. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I consented. I said, okay. I consented, okay. Not verbally, but in, in my innermost. Intentionally. Intentionally, I said, okay. And uh, I, I was pulled into this vortex, this very dark vortex. And as I got pulled in, uh, it just felt like the whole thing opened up. And as I got pulled in, there was a point where I truly did not exist for, for no time. It was like a boom, boom, you know, it was, I got pulled in. As soon as I got pulled in, I could then see from, if you understand, mm -hmm. it was, uh, I could see from. And, and at that point, there was a point of absolute death, complete death. Uh, of attachments, there, there was no attachment anymore to the, to the mental structure, the emotional structure. Uh, so much so that everything had opened up and, and it truly reflected what was directly observing. And uh, coming, uh, and the void was in fact the reflection of uh, the absolute. It, it was, um, uh, I got sucked into it and then, then I came to, I could see, basically. I could see and I could see from a completely completely different uh, reality base to what I, I, I was before, totally. Well, that's really cool. Uh, I didn't want to interrupt you because it, it all came out so beautifully, um, but a couple of questions occurred to me as you were speaking. Maybe just elaborate a little bit more on the comparison between the peace you felt when the flock of birds dispersed, you know, the, the thoughts, and, and there's that peace for the first time in your life, and this void that you've just been speaking of. Is the void kind of like a deeper level of the same thing or how would you compare those two points that you made? That's a good question, Rick. There is a difference. The mind opening is a more superficial opening of reality. Um, when the heart opened, because the heart is very much um, linked to your body as well. So, so, so it was the emotional attachment or emotional construct of identity that's in the heart is very much connected with the body as well. So when the whole thing opened, uh, it even felt like the body opened and, and even dying to the body, so to speak. The difference was when the heart opened, it, it was the complete surrender. The mind, that was just a portal. That was just uh, what was observing was just pure consciousness. But pure consciousness had not yet fully died to the whole construct had not come into full realization of what is beyond all of this, beyond all appearance. Uh, it's only when the heart opened that suddenly there was going completely beyond all appearance and there was a coming to and a complete relating, a complete self-realization of absolute, of absolute. So, so you're relating from absolute rather than just from peace of mind. I mean, uh, the peace of mind stuff was just, was just the I am, the I am consciousness in its transcendence of uh, what we call the uh, modification, the, 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 the conscious modification we call mind. But when you go beyond the modification of the heart, when that opens up, you've actually gone beyond all location, what, you know, you've gone beyond all location and that's where the I am then totally goes beyond the body and then comes back into the ultimate reality of, of absolutes. A couple of thoughts come to mind. One is you may have heard Adyashanti talk about awakenings in the head, heart, and gut. 
and you've just described head and heart. How do you relate to his saying that? Have you also moved on to a gut realization, or is that something you expect to have happen eventually, or what? Or maybe you don't go buy into that model. No, no. I, I said to you, the heart links into the body. Oh, so that's what, how you would... Yeah, that's that, how that, I, that would be gut. I see. Okay. I don't know what gut is, actually. I mean, if my, yeah, my, my, maybe I've got a gut awakening to happen. Maybe there's... <laughs> maybe that's the final one. I guess maybe... Well, I don't know. I don't want to speculate. Something, like you say, into the body. Something more visceral, uh, yeah. fundamental, primordial. Yeah, there, there is... Um, when I consented to uh, going beyond the attachments to the, to, to the heart, it was the body as well. Um, it linked into the body. It was, it was um, you either go mad or you'll die. It, it really felt that the whole thing could just uh, go. So when this happened, again, you didn't have much of a spiritual background uh, aside from 12-step. Um, did you sort of have a feeling like, ah, oh, okay, I, I have a feeling for what this is. I maybe can't describe it yet, but something good has happened and everything's okay and I'm not going to go mad or die and, and I'm going to have to, you know, learn more about this, but it looks like, you know, you felt, it felt like great relief and something profound had happened. There, there was tremendous relief. I cannot tell you that there, there was, uh, it was profound relief mm. uh, on such a level. I, I was very lucky that I had the grounding of the 12 steps without a doubt, because that allowed for this very, thing to fall into uh, some perspective, you know. Um, but, but the main one I got, in spiritual terms or conscious terms or whatever, it was Jesus who, uh, at the end of it all, it, it was from my growing up in Christianity mm -hmm. that the revelation, when it all opened up and, and I could see, was, uh, ah, Jesus was right. Ah, cool. This is the kingdom. Yeah. This is the kingdom. And there's a lovely distinction here I want to tell you, Rick, mm -hmm. is, is that the, the kingdom was like, is, is, is like this unmanifest, absolute, it's everywhere, everything's of it, right? And it's mm -hmm. alive, it's, but it's unmanifest, it's not here, it's not asleep, it's not awake. I can't say words, I can say, I can say a few things, but it's, it's awesome. But what was observing it is the I am. You know, I as the I am, the I am became, I as the I am became detached from all the, 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 the mental and emotional constructs and the physical construct. And suddenly the I am comes into perfect abidance to that that's beyond that and, and this, this unmanifest reality of absolute. And I could see that that was the kingdom. And the observation is the Christ, you know, is, you know, I realized that um, Jesus was right also in the Christ, that the Christ is pure consciousness. Mm -hmm is absolutely pure consciousness with no attachment to the world for meaning because it's not of this world and it's of the father you know uh jesus lived his life in complete recognition of the father of the absolute living in relation to that it, so so for me at that time it was jesus you know jesus it is through jesus uh, through through that nice it must be kind of cool now having well, you, you've just alluded to it, really, but ha having had this realization to look back on the Bible and also delve into other spiritual, you know, texts, yeah. texts, and, and realize, oh, so that's what they were talking about. You know, it's like exactly, exactly. totally different uh, yeah. appreciation than you could have had before. You get it all. You understand everything, even the even the Upanishads. The Upanishads are wonderful. You read mm. them. It's like, ah, oh, this is God speaking. Right. You know, this is this is the the words of the absolute. You know, and it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I became like a genius overnight. I understood <laughs> theological, deep 
cool. Thanks. And you didn't even have to go to a theological seminary or whatever you were planning exactly. to do. <laughs> exactly. Saved yeah. yourself all that tuition. Yeah. I have, yeah. I have conversations with friends sometimes and, uh, who go through a shift or have gone through a shift in which they insist there is really no longer any sense of a personal self. Um, and I can't understand or relate to that in terms of my own experience. And I acknowledge that they, you know, their experience is probably well beyond mine. Then again, there's other people. Like, for instance, our friend Francis Bennett, um, whom I think you spoke with or gave a presentation with over in England, who say, you know, you, you're always going to you're always going to be a person. You're just not only a person. I mean, the fact that you're not only a wave, does, uh, the fact that you realize you're not that, that you're now the ocean doesn't mean you're not still a wave, but also the ocean. And yet I say things like that to such people and they say, no, no, there really is no person. There's no wave. It's just the ocean. And I don't know how they can function as human beings if that's really, truly the case or how they would react if you whacked them in the shin with a hammer or something. It seems like to me there would be kind of a person there feeling that. So, I mean, what's your whole orientation to that argument? I know over there in, you know, Tony Parsons land, there are a lot of people running around emphasizing that point that you are not a person. What do you say? <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, that's, that's a big one, isn't it? I really don't buy into that at mm. all. The, just in my experience, Rick, just in, in what's happened for me, and just by saying that to you, I'm sure there'll be someone saying, yeah, oh, you can't say me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. One of these things. Please pass the salt. Who wants the salt? Oh. You know? Yeah, 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 there is no one here, you know. <laughs> um, no, 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 I can't. I can give you examples of um, what I've experienced yeah, uh, with people that do, do believe that, but... Uh, I can't. I don't know who oh. I'm talking about, but um, it, uh, it's, uh, so Mr. X says, has says yeah, such yeah. and such, no, and how does Steve respond? No, because this person is quite well known, and they'd know us. Okay, honestly, they would. So, but, so, but, but just no, no, no. dealing with the philosophical principles here, what would you say? Well, it's it's, it's what's all that about? I mean, um, uh, what I've what I've come okay. What I've come to see was, um, and and I didn't come through any physical. I didn't come through Tony Parsons. I didn't come through uh, anyone really. No one. I I, I had a very basic uh, twelve step and, and very Christian basis. And and all I can say is that um, that there are waves. Yes, of course, there are waves. There are outer bodies of existence that we call the mind. We call the heart. We call the body. All of these things. Where they get confused, or uh, dare I say that, is, is that the body of illusion, uh, that is the eye, the body of illusion we call ego, is nothing more than identification with the capacity to think or the capacity to feel or the capacity to jump around in a physical body. You know, um, mm -hmm. The body of illusion is identification, you see. So that evening, when, when I detached from all of this, it was the body of illusion that died, it dissipated, okay? Um, and in its dissipation, um, that false tension that's keeping it all closed uh, fell away. And what opened up was the mind opened up, the heart opened up, and, and all of it, right? This, this is the, the, the really interesting thing, is, is the mind, everything um, opened up to what is truly experiencing that, right? And, and when we look at the mind, I know you know this, Rick, but, but you know that the mind does not experience itself, does it? You know, it, and the heart doesn't experience it. None of this experiences itself. So form doesn't experience itself, yet it does not live outside consciousness. So what's happening is, it is consciousness appearing as form, okay, and it is consciousness directly experiencing the mind, and the mind can reflect that that's not here, 
Now, this is what Nisigadatta speaks about. Nisigadatta says, I'm not here. What does he mean by that? He's not attached to the world for meaning. He's not attached to the world. There's no body of illusion. There's no tension that he calls the I. So what he's saying is, is um, so this is happening, you know, but it's happening to what he's observing. What he's observing is not here, okay? So there is no you in that sense, you see? There is no false attachment, so there's no false identity, right? But... Um, but what there is, is of course there are these, these things. These are happening within consciousness. Uh, there is a person within consciousness, but what's directly experiencing the person in consciousness is not here. I agree, right? Yeah. But, 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 but there is, a, there, there is, a, there is a, a personal body. There is even a me body, an I body, you know, that you have these personal things. But I, I can assure, you know, for me, there, there's just no attachment to it for meaning. The meaning itself is in a direct experience. Um, and what is directly experiencing that is, is pure consciousness. And then pure consciousness itself is of that that is observing that, that can't, you can't even explain. So I, I don't agree with this. I mean, when you start going around saying, uh, oh, there is no one, there is just this happening and all that, I just find it really, well, where's the beauty? Where's the love? You know, where's, mm. the, uh, where's the poetry? What's all this about? I find... Uh, existence uh, an incredible phenomena but I understand what they're saying I do understand that there is no one here and I understand that that no one here even the awareness of of uh, not being a body is a uh, is, is a consciousness that also is is uh, transient you know the you know um, if you want to be an absolutist you can say that the only thing real is this knowing that that is um, and everything else is is is, is false or is illusion, but I don't find that that's what's the illusion. I don't find creation the illusion. I find the attachment to the creation, assuming an identity, the illusion, which mm. is what we call the ego. So that, that's where I, I, I come from. Yeah. One helpful way that I've found to explain it is to say, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm everywhere, and I'm nowhere. I mean, and all those three things are kind of simultaneously true. You know what I mean? I mean, can you relate to that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I spent two years looking at that very question. Upon awakening, there was, there was the most profound revelation of, of self or the, the, the absolute and, and, and all of these things. But we don't live in a world that really explains the science of that consciousness, unless you live in India, you know, where they have the, the wonderful uh, words that, have, you know, they've got words that describe things that we don't uh, regarding uh, this conscious phenomena. Um, but I spent two years looking at this, and, and uh, for me, it's not enough to say um, I, I am abiding in nothing, everything is transient, it just falls away. Um, I mean, that doesn't make a cup of tea or, or get a job or pay the rent, you know. Um, so I wanted to learn, how, how, does one, uh, how does one, as the realized state of consciousness, continue to live in a relation? to what is observing, the overall observation of, of absolute. How does one live in relation to that so that one is always abiding as that? And that abiding factor of I am, how does that then become a flow that comes into all appearance, directly experiencing appearance, so that all appearance is just reflecting what is observing? Then I, I, I wanted to learn this so that I could be more integrated and so that I could um, maintain this integrity of, of, of pure consciousness, but at the same time, allow the I, the me, whoever, all these flavors of, of modified consciousness that make up the person, enjoy that as well. Why, why, why you know, why, 
there's, there's a beauty in that. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a life in that. And of course, it will go, and then it all comes back to the I am, and the I am even recedes back into the absolute. Yeah, and that kind of brings us back to your story, which is that you know you had this awakening that evening on your knees, then you went to bed, and next morning you woke up, and oh, oh boy, it's still here. Um, yeah. But then obviously you had a life to get on with, probably money to earn, and yeah, I think you have a daughter, and and you know relationships, and there was somebody named Hannah in your book, and you know all kinds of human stuff that you had to deal with. Um, so let's talk a little bit for a while now about the, the sort of the reintegration process and the kind of the ongoing development that has taken place since that awakening. Well, I, um, with the job, I mean, I, I found myself, you know, I've, I've got two daughters and I, I found myself in a place, I, I just had the awakening, I left college and I knew I, I couldn't go on to university because my, my daughter had been born. And there's no way I was going to go back and try and redo things and, and everything. I, I just wanted to go out and work. So I went out and I, I got a job part-time uh, setting up a, an outreach project in Slough, just walking around, uh, uh, helping uh, anyone that's homeless or, or, or addicted or whatever, you know, um, to, to be referred into drug services, drug and alcohol services. Nice. So I found this job really good, just to walk around, talk to these people. And, um, and I was earning money. I wasn't earning loads of money, but I was earning money. And, and, um, and it was good. It was a really good project to do. I was able to integrate, you know, whatever recovery I had from sobriety to then start with this. And I did that for two years. And then after that, I, I got a job uh, for a company, you know, working with uh, addicts in prisons, you know, uh, young offenders. I got the job whereby they, they fully trained me up to become a therapist, working with drug and alcohol. I worked there for three, three and a half years, I think, possibly four years. And while I was there, I really began to come back into the world from this, this abstract place of, of, of self-realization, of uh, hanging out in, in, in oneness and just... just you know, reading it here and there or whatever, you know. Had you gone through a phase of really being sort of out of the world and wanting to just kind of be withdrawn and close the curtains and not have anything to do with anybody? Yeah, I did for the first few months, yeah. It uh -huh. felt, I think it's, it happens, doesn't it? You know, it was so, because the, the awakening was so profound. Well, that might be it, entirely appropriate, actually, to just sort of chill for a while. And... Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was so profound. The dissipation was so great that they really felt that there was no one there. There was no one there because nothing had, had started to move back in again. You know, it was so new that I was just in this, this place, uh, walking around Slough, seeing people and, and seeing people caught up in this little projection in their mind and thinking, I remember thinking, uh, wow, I'm not there. I'm, I'm not here. And it really felt I wasn't here. People were caught up in, because most people are, you know, they're, they're caught up in what they think, the idea of themselves. And when they communicate, you can see that tension in the faces and, and uh, this, this, this um, communication or whatever. And I, I was totally invisible. I, I, I was totally formless. But within that formlessness, uh, I could see, I could just relate from the, see from the absolute. You know, thoughts would come up or things would happen, but it felt quite disembodied. But it was natural because I wasn't attached to it anyway for meaning. So it didn't matter if a little thought would go across the mind. And I would think, oh, I was just thinking, man, I must want a cup of tea. Or, mm. And that, that happened for a few months. And then suddenly everything starts to come in again. You know, it, your functioning self starts to come in, you see. Mm -hmm. the, the, there's a new tension starts to build. The new tension of, of functioning. Because function itself is a tension. If you brush your teeth, you can feel the tension doing this, you see. Mm -hmm. 
it's just that there was a complete dissipation and for a while there was like a honeymoon period of having no tension whatsoever mm. um, and then suddenly it started to come back and uh, yeah and that's, that's, that's kind of what happened really. Did you ever go through a phase where you felt like you, maybe you were in some more intense circumstances of some nature and you felt like you, you kind of lost it and you're just back to being plain old Steve again for a while? Yeah, not lo not lost it, but some, uh, but it got more intense. Yes, yeah. uh, I never lost it. There was always like a, there's there's always been a little aperture, you know, at least a little, little aperture that you can look through and you see the whole world, you know. And this, yeah. your I amness can always be small, you see, mm -hmm. and 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 the I amness uh, always knows uh, the non-location, okay, what mm -hmm. we call the absolute, and, and you can be there, and and you can have all your dysfunctions continuing within patterns that, that may have not completely died because it's not, um, it's the, you know, because that stuff never awakens the patterns. They, they don't awaken, it's unconscious stuff. That stuff comes in relatedness to what it's observing. And then in the relatedness, it starts to transmute, starts to change. That's a whole different chapter. I'll go into that. Yeah, we, we should actually, uh, as long as we're not skipping past something we should be talking about. But um, no, stay with you. the whole thing about... Um, that stuff never awakens. It seems to me that almost everybody has uh, layer upon layer upon layer of conditioning and um, Im impressions and, and whatnot. And perhaps a certain amount of that has to be worked out before awakening happens, but not necessarily. I mean, a lot of times it seems that people awaken without having worked out very much of that, and then it has to be yeah. worked out. And, exactly, uh, yeah. Yeah, so what's your yeah. take on that? Exactly that, what you just said, funny mm. enough. Um, I, for me, it was, uh, you know, coming where I come from, the growing up, the identity, all of these things, there's a lot of stuff that happened. I think it, for most people, we all have our bag, don't we? And, and uh, it was when uh, I, I, I began working in, in the prison, I began working with a team of therapists, and I began to train as a therapist. And I'd, I'd, I've always had um, a natural bent for, for psychology and philosophy and stuff like that. So all, by the time I'd I'd got to the working with these therapists. I kind of I could hold my own, so to speak. I had my own <clears throat> way of understanding, and 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 I began to learn all of the uh, techniques of of how to therapy people. And that's when it hit me. That's when uh, I realised um, I was learning that I was learning these these this, this position of a therapist that didn't seem integrated. It seemed uh, mechanical, and and it seemed. Um, uh, it, it didn't seem to be aligned with the, the true nature because uh, the awakening was still quite fresh then mm. and uh, I hadn't yet realised how rare the, the awakening was in, in most people's lives uh, right. and of course, you know, looking at what it took for me to awaken I mean, it was a complete dying, you know, I mean, that would terrify me it terrified me, but there yeah. was just no option, you see and, and then, uh, but then working with these therapists I realised, I thought, you know how come we're not talking about this state? How come no one's talking about I am and all this this true self and this true self that knows absolute? Why why isn't anyone talking about this? You know? And I and I was looking and I was working with these therapists and I thought, why are you arguing with the person's mind? Their mind is just a reaction to their own ignorance. Why don't you get them in their true identity? You know, I'd be thinking this and thinking why, you know, and and really looking back, I was quite naive, but I, I persisted. I persisted with. Uh, uh, with the training, with working, but I found, uh, I found um, 
the trouble was I, I wasn't ambitious enough. That's one of the things. When you work with therapists, they're really ambitious, especially when they're training. Really? And I wasn't. I was very laid back and uh, very easy. And, and, um, and, and I always felt that precision of I am is that was observing. I always felt it wasn't being communicated. I felt I was having to go into a technique to, to engage with, uh, with someone, you know, to reflect someone's thinking or reflect someone's feeling or, or pattern. Uh, and then, and well, then how did we, you answer those questions to yourself of why aren't you taking this I am this into account? Why are you just dealing with their mind? What, what kind of answers did you come up with? Well, I, I didn't have the answers. That was the thing. You probably it's do the, now, though, right? Oh, I do now, but I, I didn't have it then. Right. Um, at that point, I, this is when I, I hit a wall of uh, this doesn't fit in the world. This really does not. Because um, working as a therapist, it was very, it's very structured. Uh, the, the, system, the, the whole system is very structured, you see. Right. And uh, they had very structured ways of dealing with uh, people, structured ways of thinking, structured ways yeah. of feeling. And I just found I couldn't express this. And I, and I felt then uneasy. I, I felt uneasy, yeah. yeah. Well, what would you say now? How, how have you come? I mean, I could give you an answer of why to those two questions you just posed, but what would you say? I, what, what would I do now? What well, you know, you're saying that you're observing all these therapists who weren't taking into account the, the sort of deeper dimension and they're just dealing on the level of the mind. Um, you know, I mean, I would say that it's because they don't even, most of them realize that that deeper dimension exists, or maybe they think of it in terms of, you know, the subconscious or something, but the, the, the possibility of self-realization as uh, an adjunct to, or as a foundation for therapy is just not even on their radar, you know, uh, it has, it's not in their training, it's not in their experience, even if they accepted it, they wouldn't know how to inculcate it, and, um, so that's why you didn't find it when you were studying it as a therapist. Exactly, and that and that is that was the that that's, that's what confused me was why why don't they know it? And and that that that's what I realised is they've not had the experience. They've not died to their their attachment to their mental emotional faculty. They're not autonomous in their true intimacy. Their their state of pure consciousness. They're not. They're simply not aware on that yeah. level. Sounds awful, doesn't it? I mean. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's, sure they're, they're, it's, these it's, great therapists, trust me, they were great therapists. But it, but this is very, uh, this is just an uncommon language. This, this language of self-realization and, and what have you. You make it is it. because self-realization hasn't really been common in society. It's not something we learn about not in school. It's not something yeah. that you know you see on TV very much. And but these days, of course, there are, are therapists who are realized and who are sort of non-dual therapists or you know enlightenment-based therapists. And so it is. But I'm sure that's still a tiny, tiny subset of therapists in general. Yeah. So I, I found myself just, in a way, quite bemused. But I had to, I had to continue with this job because I needed to earn the money. So I felt like a, a whore. I was a whore for the money. <laughs> Give me the money. And uh, I just observed it and thinking, well, how do I? But it, it got me thinking. It got me thinking. That was the thing. That became the next stage in my life where I thought, okay. I'm really not going to do a job next time where I can't be, be natural yourself, right. in, in a natural state. If I can't come from a natural state in a way where uh, that that kind of that kind of honesty facilitates a way in, to challenge a person's behaviour, I, I said I don't want to do nothing constructed. So um, when I left there in 2006, I remember I was on holiday with the children in a caravan on the coast in the south coast of England, and. Uh, and I began, that was it, I began writing, I began uh, exploring, I, I began to look, I thought, okay, I've got this knowledge of therapy, 
all and it was a it's great knowledge you know it's, it's wonderful knowledge i mean it, for what it is it's great and and i then um I was, you know, I was trained and everything, and, and then I, I found myself just writing. I thought, right, I need to learn how does one relate from self-realization? How does one maintain pure consciousness, the I am, and how does one then from that position, okay, come into the body, uh, function, uh, and, and then, and then uh, connect with someone else and, and, and do that, yeah. That became uh, the next question, and it was then that was in the August, and then, in the, then funny enough, in the November, I, um, I, I was introduced to seekers. <laughs> I was introduced to people that are seeking, that, 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 that the, the refined purpose of exploring what is reality, what, what is real, you know. It's funny it took you that long to run into them. So how long was it from the time you had the realization to the time you stumbled across some seekers? Seven years. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I'm just walking around with my head down. I don't, I don't think I, uh, <laughs> I... I remember seeing a few things in books, like Krishnamurti and, and stuff like that, thinking, oh, he's had the same experience, or, yeah, or yeah. Eckhart Tolle's had the same experience. And, um, but I just didn't. I don't know why that was. Not a clue. Very strange, isn't it? But one of the things happened was, was when I, when I had the awakening, when it occurred, I used to read a lot. I used to read a lot. Loads, loads of stuff, you know, obsessively, really, compulsively. And then uh, after the awakening, I couldn't read even for mm. seven years. I couldn't even pick a book up. I'd read a page and I'd have to put it down. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> it. It was so... Even spiritual stuff? Yeah, I, no, I couldn't read spiritual stuff. It was boring. Interesting. Yeah, because I knew it, you know. But, but saying that, it wasn't the right spiritual stuff because um, when I met Seekers, um, I then met a few people that did offer some good reading material and when I began to read things like the Upanishads and stuff like that I thought wow this is really good you know so yeah, yeah. I can read now yeah it's just that I didn't know this stuff was out there really to mm -hmm. be honest with you Interesting. you know I was happy anyway I had kids to look after jobs and all of these things and maybe we'll get back to seekers in a minute but you talked about you used the word imitate and I thought that was interesting that um the mind imitating pure consciousness, and maybe yeah. you, maybe you even said the heart imitating pure consciousness. It's an interesting choice of words. Um, maybe you can elaborate on that for a bit. Yeah, they're just my words. I've I've kind of ad hoc my way through this. You know, um, what it is 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 there was a point where there was a point upon awakening, and and it was it kind of remained the same for um, for for a number of years really, uh, where. I was happy in the I am, you know, in, in the formless uh, awareness, observing thought, observing reality, observing patterns, continual patterns, you know. Uh, it wasn't as bad, obviously, but still, you know, but they are, they, you know, but there was no integrating. There was no um, contact, you know, I was observing, but not directly experiencing. Uh, and I was missing the uh, relationship that the mind in its function, the, the heart and the body, I was missing that point of how it how it comes into relatedness to what is directly observing. You see, so um, when I began to explore further, um, I remember I, I, I uh, woke up one day and I thought, well, "That's it. That's it. I'm going to stay in the I am now, and I'm I'm not I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm, I'm not going to uh, work for people or work in places where uh, it, it's not about this." So. Um, I, I spent days, just days, you know, just walking, um, sleeping in my room with the curtains closed, 
I had a job just working three days a week for probation, working for the government uh, on these drug programs. And it was easy, it just worked itself. Uh, and, and the rest of the time I just spent myself just observing, just mm. observing everything. And I allowed myself to um, just, just observe the mind, observe the mind and its function and, and the heart, everything, just observe everything. And, and, uh, and I wanted to find um, how, does one, how does one come from the self-realization aspect, which is um, uh, self-realization itself is, is not reality, self-realization is of reality, it's consciousness. Uh, and consciousness knows it is of the uh, non-location, which is absolute. So how does his idea of truth then have the best effect upon the mind? Because the mind is happening. And it took a while, and, and then I realized one day, I thought, of course, of course, here I am, so into reality, so, so fine in this I amness, so fine, you know, knowing of the absolute, and, and, and that's as far as I'd got. Mm. The other parts of my life were playing out. I may not have been identifying with these aspects of the personal self or reflexive bodies of existence. So I was kind of just uh, hanging out in absolute land, in, 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 in wonderment of uh, reality and, and liberation as well, because that liberation of consciousness is, is pure. But I kind of wasn't really understanding the relationship between uh, the I am and the mind, really. That was it. So that's, that's what I embarked on. I, I wanted to know if I'm going to continue working or, or living here, it must all come now from this. It must come from uh, the I am. Yeah. I think it's an important point, and we can dwell on it a bit, because you know, people have an idealized notion of what an enlightened person should be like, how he should talk, how he should act, how he should think, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, how he should behave. And then a lot of times spiritual teachers kind of uh, let people down because they're not talking or acting or thinking or behaving that way. And uh, so people you know, wonder why the disconnect, how come this sort of state which should make one walking Buddha sort of attuned to you know life in a very harmonious benign way how come that's not happening for everybody these days I think the, the word um, embodiment is all the all the rage it's kind of in vogue that people you know who maybe 10 years ago had some kind of awakening or spiritual realization uh, realize that it wasn't embodied and that it needs to get embodied and that it yeah. needs, needs to somehow, you know, in, percolate or integrate into practical daily life. So it sounds like this was a project for you, uh, you know, over the last decade or so. Tell us about it. How'd you go about it? You know, to what extent do you feel like you've achieved it or, you know, how much more would there, or is it a lifelong process? I don't know if it's lifelong. I, I know it's uh, ongoing at the moment. I think it's important to know the established position of I am and how that then becomes the direct experiencer without experiencing. Do you, know, do you understand? It's like um, how it becomes the direct experience of, of, of what is happening within your perceptual field because what is happening does not experience itself. Now, I didn't know that, you, yeah. see. you see. So I had to learn that. And I learned that uh, on my own, just watching. I thought, of course, yes. You know, there, there is only consciousness, these modifications of consciousness do not experience themselves now. So which means, which means that um, whatever pattern, whatever patterns uh, these modifications of consciousness are made up of, they come from direct observation, they come from consciousness. So in all the years that the ego is playing out, this reality of a separate self, of course, um, is still going to leave its mark its effects, it's not ego, but it leaves its effects 
in some of the patterns, you still have certain uh, thoughts or persuasions within you that you're observing, that you feel. The, the thing for me was, was I, I didn't want to um, just see them and, and just remain arrested in that development of just seeing and just remain, oh, no, I, it's not real. It's just this is absolute and the I am, da, da, da. Yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I did you find yourself sort of saying or doing certain things and saying, wow, I'm really being a dick here, you know? I mean, how come my realization isn't cha changing my behavior? Exactly, yeah. precisely. That You couldn't have said it better. <laughs> and, and it's like, uh, why am I sticking my fingers up at the drivers in front of me, you know? He's, yeah. he's, or the guy who's tailgating me, you know? And I thought, I really want to see this because um, it interested me. I'm a therapist, and, and I thought, you know, what is the link here? And so I spent about two years just exploring that what did you come up with the million dollar question <laughs> what i came up with is um is that the recognition of reality is what we call realization okay the recognition of reality reality itself does not need to be recognized it does not need to awaken it it just simply is it always has been Right, it doesn't need okay. us for anything. It's fine, doing absolutely just fine not, all on its right? own. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah, absolutely. That doesn't need to awaken. That doesn't need you. But it does have a thought. You see, the the unmanifest is manifesting, and it's manifesting in its first embodiment is what we call pure consciousness. It's the I am. Hmm. Okay. This I am serves only to recognize what is real, and if it can recognize what is real, it can then live abiding to what is real. So you can become pure consciousness abiding as that. So there is no one, right? So that no one becomes the first thought of that, as Nisargadatta says, you see. And then what happens is, is what comes out of the pure consciousness are all the modifications of consciousness. So that's where you then realize that there's still experience, but there's direct experience. So there is mind, there is, there is the person happening, but it's the direct experience of the person is formless consciousness because your observation of, of whatever you perceive as a person transcends the person and what is transcendent of the person is just pure consciousness but the person lives within that consciousness it it lives in relatedness to what is directly observing it so that that's when i i became more complete i i kind of started to mature a bit i, I kind of grew up hmm. i realized that you can maintain this this uh not maintain it because there's no one maintaining it but you can abide you can become more established as self-realization hmm. and, and allow that pure consciousness as self-realization to live in relation to what is real, which is the, what Tony calls that, yeah. whatever you, you know, the, the oneness or, the, you know, some people don't like oneness, the absolute, whatever, unmanifest. And, and living in relation to that, you suddenly realize that your pure consciousness is a flow. This is what I found. This is, this is really what had me thinking this is great it's just the flow it has no agenda no orientation whatsoever it remains undifferentiated and it's transcendent of everything that is appearing so everything that is appearing is a direct reflection of what is observing what is experiencing it then brings everything into there's no separation you know the, and it also brings everything into a state where um there is no i there's there's no one doing this it's just um it's just happening but then this flow of attention is is uh is realization is I am. It, 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 as I say, it's transcendent of all agenda and everything, so it just flows. So if there is um, something happening, you just directly experience it and it reflects what is directly experiencing. There's, they become one, really. Did you ever read the Bhagavad Gita? 
some of it, not all of it. It's a really thick book, so you know. Yeah. Well, it's a, the basic theme is that you know Arjuna is a warrior. Yeah. He, he was. It was his obligation in this circumstance to fight a battle, and he was going to kill yeah. a lot of his friends and relatives and dear ones, and so he had this moral dilemma, and he and he presented it to you know Krishna. He said, well, "What should I do? I can't do this," and Krishna said, "You know, transcend." He said, "Just get to the absolute." And, yeah. and then three three verses later, he said, "Now established there, established in yoga, established in being, perform action, and you know then, uh, you know, then the action will sort of be in accordance with all the sort of the laws of nature, the laws of dharma, or whatever, in, in a way that the, the human intellect alone could never work out." That's um, right. So, I guess uh, the question here is. Uh, and, and I know we, you talked about seekers earlier, and you have like a weekly meeting or something where you meet with people. There's two things those people want to know that you have to somehow convey to them. One is, well, how do I have this real, sort of realization you had? How do I get to the self or pure consciousness? Yeah. Then if they have that, what do I do with it? You know, how do I live that in my life? Is that true? Is that representative of the, the essential questions that people have? People don't ask me questions hardly ever. I, I hardly we just sit in silence. Oh, okay, that's nice too. There, there's a yeah, there's that's, a deep, that takes care of the first part. <laughs> yeah, there, there's. Uh, I mean, people do ask questions, and, and then it's. Um, I, I then there's exploration, obviously, within the consciousness. But I just want to go back, Rick. Yes, I, I will come back to this. I want to go uh -huh. back because when you said what is it, and I said about you know become established in the absolute, and then and you said that Bhagavad Gita mm -hmm. uh, established action or something, the right action. Established in is yeah. yoga stakura karmani, established in yoga yeah. perform action. That's right, perform action. Uh, in Walking Awake, the book, I talk about that, mm -hmm. it's a true action. The true action is actually the non-action, is, is the, the observation itself has the most um, profound effect on, on form, on thinking and stuff like that. Mm. So, so when um, when people ask questions at uh, my meetings, it, it's um, uh, we connect. Simple. We connect. We we merge. We we um, uh, connect with where that person is. And I always, you know, um, uh, look where that person's attention is because it's the attention that becomes that is realized or unrealized. You know, attention is is, is awareness. You see. And uh, attention can get locked in many places, and because I'm a therapist, where I where I've been trained, um, I like to follow where people's uh, uh, attention is, and and, and uh, but come but speak from the the, the point of liberated uh, I am, and, and and show how show how you can move as the non-doer with within this idea of uh, false doing. Yeah. Yeah. I heard you say, and maybe it was your conscious TV interview. I'm not sure that. Um, the people you've associated with, people who've come to your meetings and all, no one's quite had the sort of degree of realization that you had, as far as you can tell. It it's just hasn't, yeah. hasn't just happened for people as readily as it. Of course, you went through a lot before it happened for you. As you've been doing this for a while, living it and also, you know, serving in some capacity as a satsang guy, um, do you feel like a capacity or a facility is growing in you for helping to facilitate um, some kind of shift in people, and, and if so, how? Or is it just the sitting in silence and there's some kind of attunement or entrainment or, or something that seems to take place? When I talk about myself, I mean, there's always a movement. I've spoken about certain movements that have allowed me to explore or allowed me to see things from uh, the established understanding of I am in relation to that. Mm -hmm. um, with people, I, I do understand that most people 
uh, haven't had the sort of uh, experience I've had or revelation I've had so suddenly. Uh, it was terrifying. You know, I, I don't expect people, many people, to go through what I went through. It was no. spirit, spiritual suicide, really. Um, so you don't advocate going out and drinking for ten years? <laughs> Just <sure>. kidding. <laughs> Good stuff for that. Yeah. Good, hey. Okay, first Good do stuff. that. Come back to me in ten years. Well. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. You know, if someone's not ready to stop drinking, you know, drink more. That's what they say. <laughs> for me, it's it's, it's um, connect. Just connect. You know, in the meetings, there's stillness, and and then there's a deeper there's a deeper resonance of a deeper reality. There is a deeper body of consciousness than the other states of consciousness. We we you know we're the familiar states of consciousness, such as the mind, the heart, the body, and and even the intuitive body of consciousness that has you thinking and working things out and getting your little ahas and stuff like that. Come to the meetings, become very still, connect, connect to the deeper body, the deeper body that is. Um, without characteristic, uh, without attachment to any of these surface bodies for, for meaning, you know. So, and, and, uh, and, and to think that I facilitate, uh, do I facilitate? What a great word, uh, Rick, facilitation. It sounds like um, I'm doing something. Well, I, I, it's like, I, you know. I've some pulleys up and uh, I'm playing books out and, and lectures or whatever. But no, 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 it's just sitting in silence. Yeah. There's a real reality. There's a much deeper body of reality in being silent. You know this from being... Uh, Oh, yeah, I used to teach that, right. Actually, in that context, in that capacity, I always, I always found, and this is my next question to you, that when you step into a role like that, something yep. takes, takes over. It's like, you, you know, you kind of all your cylinders begin to kick in, and uh, you have a, a kind of a, you, know, you sort of, you, you're kind of aligning yourself with a higher purpose or something, and, and, and get, allowing that to use you as a conduit for for something that's kind of beyond your ordinary capacity um, and a lot of people who teach in various capacities have told me that, that and i've seen it and you know joe schmo gets up in front of a group and starts to teach and all of a sudden some light turns on and the, you know he's not he's he's ever so much more so have you experienced that also that when you put yourself in that role there's something profound that takes place through you you know not, oh, it's not yeah. like you're doing it but you're you're yeah. allowing yourself to serve as an instrument of yeah. something profound I just said absolutely. I'm trying to tell myself at the moment, don't say absolutely. It's an awful yeah, word right. to keep saying. No, it's, it's, um, everybody knows what the word means. Uh, in meetings, it's profound. I, I go very silent. The outer bodies, the outer structure of who we are in the surface sense uh, become very still. Mm. And then that deeper body that transcends that becomes more apparent, becomes more established. And, and there's a much deeper presence. There really is. And connecting is much deeper. People relax and, and something does happen, yeah. yeah something it's, very it's, deep. It's just really yeah. cool the way that works. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? Because it's got nothing to do with you, you know, and it's not for you, as they say. You know, it's, yeah. Uh, uh, and, and it's not for me. It's not for anyone. It, it, it's something that simply is, you know, there. That, mm -hmm. that is just uh, uh, deeper than, than what, what is currently playing out. Yeah. yeah. You're like a catalyst uh, yeah. when that kind of thing happens. Yeah, it's amazing what realization does when it awakens. It, it um, comes away from the tension, abiding in that absolute, and then suddenly that attention itself, the I am, becomes an administrator of the very essence of absolute, which is a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, connecting feeling. You know, it's it's, uh, it's nice. I'm going to see if I can find something here really quick that's kind of neat. Someone posted it the other day. This is from the... Uh end of the Rig Veda, it said, um, go together, speak together, 
know your minds to be functioning together from a common source in the same manner as the devas, the celestial beings, in the beginning remain together united near the source. Integrated is the expression of knowledge. An assembly is, this is the part, an assembly is significant in unity. United are their minds while full of desires. For you I make use of the integrated expression of knowledge. By virtue of unitedness and by means of that which remains to be united, I perform action to generate wholeness of life. United be your purpose, harmonious be your feelings, collected be your mind, in the same way as all the various aspects of the universe exist together in wholeness. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's kind of nice. Yeah, very nice. Did you write that, Rick? No, I say it's from the end of the Rig Veda. Yeah, sure. No. <laughs> I wasn't around then. That's very good. Oh, okay. All as right. far as I know. Well, you were. You were. You yeah, know, I was, right. You know, you're present, you know. How yeah. would the world be here without you? You know. It's true. There was a saint in India named Tatwala Baba, and someone once said, do you sleep? And he said, what would happen to the universe if I slept? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Speaking from the one. Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I kind of got us off on a little tangent there, but um, what haven't we covered that you would like to cover? There's, there's all kinds of interesting tidbits in your book. Um, there's all yeah. kinds of phases in your life that we've just glossed over and all sorts of interesting things, I'm sure. But um, give me a few tidbits here that you know, you'd like to cover that we haven't. Well, one standard question is, yeah. um, where are you now? It's been quite a few years since your awakening, and you've gone through all kinds of uh, integration and purification and growth and 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 whatnot. Um, you know, do you have a sense of a, a horizon in terms of like where you see this going, and in terms your your evolution as a human being and as a spiritual being or whatever? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think where I'm at now is I'm far more abiding as the I am that that's more predominant now than ever and there just seems to be a, a natural curiosity now a natural play of I amness that that is curious with all everything really likes to explore likes to really directly experience things because I think that's what this is about this is about experiencing uh, fully as conscious beings relating from the the established I am is, is the transcendent state that is that that is able to live directly this life I think it was Francis Bennett who said, um, is his book called Fully Human, Fully I believe Divine? it is, his new book is, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very apt really, because yeah. it really is about being human and also being divine. When we talk about divinity, we're talking about sourcing, you know, that, that part of you that is um, just pure consciousness and, and direct experience in life as it happens, but from the standpoint of the established I am, which has no characteristics, so there's direct experience and there's direct intimacy, so there's direct connection. This is, this is what it's about. Yeah. Do, do you tend to feel and uh, even perceive a unity with all things? Like you're walking down the street and it's all you. Yeah, sometimes I do. It's, I'm not one of those people that, that, that looks out into the world and says, oh, this is just all me. It, it's like... Some people actually different. experience that. I mean, some people... That's yeah, their, I'm that's, sure they do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For me, it's more um, when everything just fell away, it, it was like there's this... Because you got to see the world as an idea as well. Mm. Your, your, your mind, your body, it's all an idea. The world is an idea, you know, it's an idea of the oneness and, and uh, we're, we're another idea inhabiting that, emerging with that. The world in terms of creation is something that is massive, you know, it's a big thing. You know, it's here and it will go, it's transient and all of those things, but it's incredibly profound, very profound in a, in a direct experience, in, in, 
what we're allowed to be here, what we're granted to be is, is, is amazing, really. One theme One I always come back to is just that um, if we actually ponder or consider what we're looking at at any given moment, you know, the, the miracle of, you know, the tiny little bit of your fingernail and actually what's, what's in that and, and the intelligence that's governing it and so on, it's mind-boggling, but we, we just kind yeah. of take it for granted. But with me, there's a sort of a desire to better know that, that divine intelligence that is orchestrating everything. I, I remember when I, when seven years, well, when was it, in 2000, when I first began meeting seekers, I was introduced to a Zen master, which was a funny concept at the time. I thought, I'm going for uh, a meeting a Zen master. And it's funny because we actually went into a pizza place where you could actually order a pizza, you know, make me one with everything. You know? <laughs> right. So I could have used that joke and I didn't. I you learned could have. after bad timing. There's more to the joke too. I mean, you give the guy, you know, 20 and, and he doesn't give you any change and you say, well, where's my change? And he says, well, change has to come from within. <laughs> Excellent. Right. I love it. So, uh, but I, I remember speaking to this wonderful woman, Carol, Carol Haywood, wonderful uh, uh, Zen teacher. She, uh, she, she, we were just talking and she's one of the first people that I spoke to who, who, who claimed to have that to the awakening. And she has, she was a very open, very open uh, being. And uh, first person I ever spoke to, and she said, truth, there is no habituation, no habituation, which just basically means um, it doesn't matter how much you source from truth, how much you say, how, how realized you are in truth, mm -hmm. it's always enough, always, always enough. It, it, you never get bored of it. You never need more. Oh, I see what oh, you mean, yeah. She said, there's no and as soon as she said that, I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's incredible that you know that. I would also say that part of the reason there's no habituation is that it keeps blossoming more and more fully. And that's wonderful, isn't it? The blossoming, the, the curiosity of it, the direct experience of it, the flow. It's wonderful, you know, it's, it's, it's a good, good. Because we are very adaptable creatures. We, we sort of acclimate to whatever level of happiness or suffering or whatever we're living. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, we can be quite objectively miserable, but if there's a little bit of a, uh, you know, uptick in our level of happiness, it seems great, you know, but it would be quite miserable if we contrast that with where we might be 10 years hence if it keeps upticking, you know. So, I mean, if you, if you were to go back to the night of your original realization, as wonderful as that may have been, you might find that it's pretty yucky compared to the, actually the way you feel normally, ordinarily now. Possibly, I think uh, that night is. Uh, that, that's pretty special. Yeah, that just changed. But you know, I remember, I remember speaking to someone about four years or five years after the awakening, mm -hmm. and it was someone in the fellowship, and we were talking about spiritual matters, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and they said, you know, what about your ongoing relationship with God, you know? And I said, uh, well, truth, or whatever, you know, God. They say God, and I said, um, well, it's never changed. Uh, it's, it's not changed since that night in '99. That revelation just yeah. revealed to me the unchangeable, the immutable, the the reality just is, it just simply is. And, and uh, I can't add anything to it or take anything away. Or, and it's good, it's good. No habituation, just, it's always good. Mm. But, just to play devil's advocate, mm. you can add to it. I mean, you can take infinity in mathematics and then you can multiply it by itself or add a thousand to it or whatever. And it's still infinity, but there's somehow you know, they can, they talk of, inf you know, degrees of infinity and, you know, inf <coughs> and so on. So there's, there's like, it's paradoxical. Oh, you just blame my mind, Rick. Did yeah. I? 
yeah, 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 total. Oh, oh good. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> infinity upon infinity upon, uh, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> what? Did I really blow your mind? Why, why did you say that? I've never, I've never thought of that. That's incredible. There's nothing more infinite than uh, yeah, manifest, and, and yeah, it's interesting. I suppose there's stuff. There's I don't know. I, I, it always remains unchanging. It just always remains. It's funny, isn't it? Because it remains unchanging, but pregnant with the promise of change. You know, there's, there's, it's loaded. You know, with, yeah. with the promise of existence. Speaking of the Upanishads, as we did earlier, there's a, this beautiful verse which you may have heard, which is Purnamada, Purnamidam, Purnamudachite, Purnasya. I forget how the rest of it goes, but in any case, it, it says, this is full, that is full. And then taking fullness from fullness, fullness remains. So it's like, you know, the, the, the manifest world is full, the absolute from which it supposedly has been taken, uh, extracted or emerged is full, and nothing is depleted or diminished when this fullness emerges from that fullness. That's right. There's, there's no um, problem there, is there? It's only when the ego attaches itself to the mind and lives in relation to the mind for meaning that it, it then becomes the quality of the mind, which is compulsion, you know, and, and with compulsion comes habituation. You can never have enough. There's the illusion of uh, lack and, uh, and all of this. How old are your daughters now? Hannah is 16. She's 17 in uh, January and uh, Lucy is 17. Are you married? No. In a relationship? I've never, no, I'm single. Hey, that ladies? And, uh, <laughs> and I've never been married. That, that's the thing. When we met each other, we were together for 17 years and, and we were always both very laid back and we just didn't get married. The, the institution of marriage just didn't oh. appeal to us. So, what have you. But, you know, that's, that's how but it is. But are you in a relationship or are you just sort of on your own these days? At the moment, I'm on my own. Hmm. Yeah, I'm on my own. How has spiritual realization influenced your relationships? terrible really oh, yeah yeah it's awful how come um, honestly yeah yeah honestly i i'm not good i'm not good to be with why i'm i'm probably too detached in many ways i find i don't have the same um consideration that most men have where so much has fallen away that here i'm blaming my uh, awakening now i seem to be quite okay quite self-contained in my own universe so to speak mm. and quite happy to uh think and i find if i if i do date it's um it can be quite difficult in that sense. Have you ever dated anyone or wanted to date anyone who was also self-realized? <laughs> how, so how would that go? Um, God, imagine, imagine that. Uh, yeah, that would be nice. That would be really good to meet someone um, who maybe shared the same lack of consideration as me. <laughs> huh. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, if you ever do that, we'll have to have another conversation about it because that would be something that I think people would be really interested in because, and there are kind of self-realized couples out there, you know, like Rupert and Ellen or Adya and Mukti or, and all, and, and they seem to really um, appreciate the fact that the, the two of them are on that the same kind of wavelength. Yeah, it must be, it must be wonderful. It must be wonderful. I just haven't found that yet. Hmm. So if there's a girl out there who's... Uh, Send your qualifications and... Uh, yeah, just... just uh, in including a, a printout of your EEG reading. Forward them to me. <laughs> <laughs> ah, great. Well, that might be a little bit of a strange note to end on.
Maybe, maybe, yeah, it was a bit strange, but... Uh, yeah, let's, let's uh, give us a synopsis or something that you, you would like to end on, a, kind of a note of inspiration to people, perhaps even people who have had a substance abuse problem and uh, who, who, you know, I think by this time, if they've watched this interview, can see that there is hope for them in the realm of spiritual realization. With people that are uh, experiencing addiction, that are experiencing um, maybe alcoholism or drug addiction or sex addiction or, or gambling addiction, just to let them know that they are on the <clears throat> far side spectrum of attachment. You know, that addiction is nothing more than a symptom of what's happening within the Western world and all over the world. So if you're suffering from this addiction, this attachment to um, uh, this, this separation, you're very close to finding out what is real. You know, if, you're, if you find yourself at the breaking point and the drugs and the drink don't work and you don't know who you are when you take that away, you're at a very close point of uh, discovering who you could be, who, who you really are. I, th I think addiction really, but it does, it boils down to, um, it always boils down to identity. If, if you think you're a separate person attached to a certain mind and all of this, then, then, uh, then in itself is an addiction, it's a separation. You know? That's an interesting point. Yeah. It's, it's like by that definition, everybody in the world is addicted. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of addiction. You, you can be very much addicted to the idea you have of yourself. It's just attachment. It's the far, it's the, it's the extreme end of over-attachment, that's what addiction is really. Hmm. And, and when you're at that point, um, you're at a point where you can really maybe look at that and maybe go through a process of um, review. It's a good time to review. So there's always hope for the addict. I think they're closer to breaking than someone who is just walking the treadmill, you know, through their life. They, they go through life, they've got the car, they've got the house, they've got the comfortable stuff, and, and uh, you can go through your whole life sleepwalking. But uh, as an addict or an alcoholic, uh, you're at breaking point. It, it could be a good point. It could be a, the best point of change for you. Yeah. yeah definitely. Um, it could I mean, be a blessing. They do talk about bottoming out in 12-step, yep. don't they? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So uh, in addition to the little satsangs that you have there locally, um, do you do anything? Do you travel? Do you do retreats? Do you do Skype sessions with people? Any of those kind of things? Yeah, I do Skype sessions and I do one-to-one -one sessions as well as I'm a therapist. Um, I, I run a, uh, one meeting a week in Maidenhead. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at getting a venue in London soon, because I live right near London, so I should be doing one in London. Yeah. And, and, I, and I run four retreats a year, four retreats a year. And I'm looking at doing my first overseas one in, in uh, Holland in uh, 2016, in the spring 2016. Great. And so people so can obviously go to your website to check out all that. And, and your website is? Uh, invitationsofbeing.org. Okay, invitationsofbeing.org. And I'll be yeah. li linking to that from your page on that gap, of course. And I didn't really mention your book, but you have a, a lovely book called Walking Awake. Nice book yeah. cover. Why did you choose that image of the girl with her face in the water? Um, I, 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 where I live, there, there's a quite a very well-known photographer, actually, a very oh. good photographer uh, called Barry. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we were just talking one day and I, and I said to him, I said, what do you do? He said, I'm a photographer. He said, what do you do? I said, well, I do this, do that. And I'm just coming to the end of writing this book. He said, uh, well, look, I can do the cover for you. And the guy who done that, he's, he does stuff for Vogue. He does stuff for international magazines. That's mm -hmm. a quality photograph. Yeah, it's nice. It's, cool. it's a work of art. And, and uh, 
And so one day he said, well, go, go to my, go, go to my uh, portfolio, online portfolio, choose a picture, you can have it. Because we kind of got on, he just said, you can have it. Mm -hmm. So, but before I could even do that, I got a phone call the, the following week. He said, have you found a picture? I said, no. He said, look, come round, I'll choose one with you. And when I got round there, he said, I've actually chosen one for you. And he chose that. So huh. when I saw it, I thought, yeah, that, that's a great picture. Because it's like... Is um, it a metaphor for something in the book? I think so. I, it, to me, it's like a baptism. It's like uh, going into the unknowing. It's like she's being baptised, going into the unknowing, being reborn. It's a little bit like that. The tone of it fits the book because the book is, is quite an exhaustive investigation in consciousness. It is, it's, and it's not a thick book. I actually managed to read the whole thing, which I don't usually do every week when people send me these big books. And, you know, a lot of it was totally fascinating. There are parts where I, you kind of lost me, and I don't know if that's your fault, because you're trying to explain really abstract stuff and deep experience, and it's hard to put that into words. But I always find it fun to try to understand such things when I read them, you know, to yeah. see what, to kind of tune in to what the person is actually trying to say. Yeah, because I don't follow a school of thought, you see, so it's all me and using words and, and, and it, it can lose you, I suppose, in, in some ways. What, what resonates with you might resonate with someone else. Yeah, you know? anyway, I enjoyed it. Okay, and I've enjoyed this. It's been a good conversation. So let me just make a couple of typical wrap-up points. Um, sure. I've been speaking with Steve Ford, as you know, and this is an, one more in an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. If you happen to have stumbled upon this for the first time, go to batgap.com and check out the past interviews menus and you'll see all the other ones categorized and organized in various ways. You'll also find the, a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can subscribe to the channel and uh, you'll, YouTube will notify you when a new one is posted. This exists as an audio podcast. There's a link to that on batgap.com so you can listen on your iPod or whatever your phone. I know there's the donate button that I mentioned in the beginning. appreciate people contributing and helping to support this. So that's just about it. So thanks again, Steve. Thanks, Rick. It's been good talking to you. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching, and we'll see you next time.